From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour, and I'm George Dawes Green, the founder of the Moth. I have friends who think nostalgically of their boyhoods. They remember a time of rapture. My boyhood felt like a horror movie. Everything was alien. Everything scared me. I was never comfortable. I mean, first I had no idea what I was doing on this bizarre planet, but also I kept morphing all the time, and everybody around me kept morphing all the time. And there were these huge, terrifying, lumbering creatures who told me they were going to catch me, and then I'd become one of them. I'd become an adult. And finally I thought, all right, that's okay, that's fine, good. I'll be an adult. Good. At least then I won't feel like such an alien. Right. In this hour, we have four stories about the terrors and the putative delights of boyhood. A few years ago, my friend Neil Gaiman, the novelist, came with me on the Unchained tour. We filled up an old 1972 Bluebird school bus with raconteurs and musicians, and we went all around the American South looking for towns where there were still independent bookstores. And in those towns, we told stories. Here's Neil Gaiman on the Unchained tour in Asheville, North Carolina. I didn't actually expect to be in Asheville for the first time in my life until three weeks from now, <laughs> when my son is getting married here. Thank you. He's marrying an Asheville girl. And it was because of my son, whose name is Mike, or Michael, or Mikey, depending on what time period we're talking about. It was because of him that I discovered what an incredible disappointment I had been to my father. <laughs> and it was almost entirely the fault of the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> because shortly after we moved to America, to the frozen Midwest, um, Mike, it was Mikey then, um, went to see the Mikey, Mighty Ducks and came back saying, I have to play hockey. I have to do this. I'm going to do this. And he did. He learned to play hockey. He learned to ice skate. Next thing you know, I was a hockey dad. <laughs> I was a good hockey dad in that I could drive him to hockey and I could stand <laughs> in a cold shed. After that, I kind of failed as a hockey dad. I was never quite sure what was happening. Um, he actually asked me, after my first attempt to cheer him on, to either stop cheering him on or to get the terminology right. It wasn't a hockey bat. And shouting, hit that flat thing, was just wrong. And 
I apologized and, and was sort of silent after that and was never quite sure what was happening, but I would keep my eye on the score and I would know which side was him and which side was the other team. So at the end of the game, I would be able to say, well, you did your best or, or, or congratulations. <laughs> and then my father came out from England to stay with us for a few days and I took him with to a hockey match. And I got to see the joy in my dad's face watching his grandson, part of his genetic line, play a sport. <laughs> and play well and take pride in this. And I saw this amazing joy and delight in my dad's eyes I'd never, ever seen. I was the other kind of kid. Um, in, in sort of you know, junior school where, where you'd get two team captains and they'd get to pick the kids that they wanted to play with them. And they'd pick backwards and forwards. They would eventually get down to a very short girl with very thick glasses and me. And then they'd pick her. <laughs> I did not have what it took to play sports. I had a different kind of head. And it wasn't that I didn't want to be good at sports. I would have loved to have been good at sports. Um, I would go out onto that football field or the rugby field or whatever the kind of field it was with every intention of making everybody proud of me. And they would tell me where to go and stand, and I would go and stand there, and I'd watch that ball go, and I'd think, you know, that ball, it's, it's a lot like those adverts in the back of those American comics for baseballs that you can throw, and they, they go in all sorts of weird directions, and that's really cool. And, and you know, that, that's not quite as cool, though, as those X-ray spectacles that they advertise where you can not only look at your hand and see the bones, but you can also see naked ladies. <laughs> and it's $1.99, and the Americans have to be so far ahead of us technologically. <laughs> and they have sea monkeys. <laughs> and I don't know what they are, but they're monkeys, and they live under the water. And somehow, the older male sea monkeys can smoke pipes <laughs> underwater. And I wonder how you smoke a pipe underwater. And just as I'm pondering the various ways you could smoke a pipe underwater, something very large and heavy and wet and made of leather is going to hit me in the side of the face. And then I'm going to look around and people are going to be shouting at me because apparently I should have known this was going to happen and done something about it. And that was how I played sports. <laughs> what I did was make things up. It was all I really wanted to do. Um, my dad found this rather hard to understand, that I had no wish to follow him in into any 
of the family businesses that he wanted to be in or he was in. I, I didn't have that. I didn't want to be in property. I told him I wanted to write. So he tried to get me a job as somebody who showed people around a show home. <laughs> and I said, that's not actually writing. And he said, no, no, no. There's a lot of time when people won't be visiting the show home, so you can just sit there and write. <laughs> and to please him, I actually went for an interview. But the man never showed up. So I got on a bus and went home, and that was the end of my attempt to ever get a real job. <laughs> and I wrote. And my dad was great. He was really supportive in the ways that he could be supportive. When I, when I was a, a young, starving journalist with two very small kids, he suggested that uh, probably the best thing that he could do was he had a, a flat that he owned above a shop. And I could just stay. We could stay in that flat. And we could cover the bills, but we didn't actually have to pay rent. And that was great. And 18 months later, when I could afford to pay rent, he said, right, now move out. <laughs> Go get a place. And I did. And it was great. And time went by, and I started to get more and more successful. And I started to win awards. And people would say to my dad, you must be so proud of him. And he'd say, I'm proud of all my children. <laughs> Until my little sister told him to stop saying that because it was really irritating. <laughs> and I was proud too. Mike grew up. And he started doing computer things. And I discovered whenever I'd ask him what it was that he actually did, that it all went away. I'd say, what do you do? And he'd say, well, what I'm doing right now is what, 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 what. I, I don't think I got that. And he'd say, well, you understand Python is a programming language. And I'd say, yes, I've got that. And he'd say, well, what, 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 what. And it was 2009. And I'd written a book called Blueberry Girl which was illustrated and beautifully illustrated by Charles Vess. And the last time I'd done a signing in New York, it had been a horror show. It had been at Barnes & Noble Union Square. It had been at night. Um, there was, we had to finish signing for about a thousand people against the clock, and all I did was put my head down, and I signed, and I signed, and we'd check, and we were pleading with these people to keep the store open, and we finished, and the last person went out, and they locked the doors, and I swore I was never coming back. And now I was coming back, but I was coming back to a bookstore called Books of Wonder, a beautiful children's store, and Charles Vess was there with me, and the smartest thing we did was we were gonna start at one o'clock in the afternoon. So we didn't have a curfew. We were great. And I was in the taxi on the way to the signing when my phone rang. And I answered it, and it was my sister, my little sister, calling from England to let me know that my dad had been in a business meeting, and he'd asked for a glass of water because he wasn't feeling very well. And having never been sick for a day in his life, he was dead of a heart attack by the time he got to the hospital. 
and I was numb. I had the taxi drop me off. Actually, in Union Square, near that Barnes and Noble, and I, I phoned my children, phoned a few people, and then my agent, Merrily, who was with me, said, you could, you could not do this. You know, everyone will understand. And I said, no, I, I, I actually really want to do this. And I walked up to Books of Wonder. And Charles was there, and Charles showed them his beautiful paintings, and I read this poem that I'd written to an unborn daughter. And then I signed for 1,500 people for eight and a half hours. And it was wonderful. All of these people were there, and each person coming up gave me something to do. And I didn't have to think about it. And I didn't have to worry. And at the end, I was exhausted. And I was done. And I was leaving. Books of wonder. And Merrily said to me, you know the last time I saw your father? And I said, no, when, when was the last time you saw my dad? And she said, oh, wasn't that Barnes and Noble signing you did in Union Square? She said, he came up there. And he was just standing on the side. He was in New York, and he stood on the side, and he watched you. And I saw him, and I recognized him, and I went over, and I said, hello, David. And he said, hello. And I said, you must be so proud of Neil. And he said, I really am. And she said, so I said to him, but you must have known this would happen. You must have known. He's, he's such a brilliant writer. He's, he's wonderful. You, you must have known this was going to happen. And my dad looked at her and he said, no, he wanted to be a writer. I thought I was going to be supporting him his whole life. <laughs> and I thought, you know, for my dad, watching me signing at that Barnes & Noble was probably an awful lot like me, watching Mike play hockey. I thought, but even so, he was perfectly willing to support me my entire life, just as I would have been willing to support Mike. And even though he was completely baffled, just as I had been baffled, he watched as I watched with every bit as much love. Neil Gaiman is the author of The Sandman, American Gods, Coraline, and The Graveyard Book. He's won the Newbery Medal and the Carnegie Medal and the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award and all the awards. In a moment, we'll be back with the story of a dog running berserk on the grand concourse of the bronze and the tale of a teenage boy who steals from his church collection plate to buy sneakers, more horrors from the annals of boyhood when the Moth Radio Hour returns. The 
The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. Support for The Moth comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so that you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash moth. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash moth. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm George Dawes Green, and we're telling stories of boyhood. Our next two raconteurs are still boys. They're recent graduates of our Moth High School Slam program. Christian Garland told his story at the Housing Works Bookstore in New York City. So uh, I'm going to let y'all know now, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. I swear I've only missed like two Sundays out of my whole 16 years of life. And uh, my grandfather, he, he was a minister. So, you know, he was my best friend. He was my... He was like the person I could talk to about anything and everything. So when I was growing up, I'm about nine, ten. I wanted to be the friend that had anything everybody else had, but I always wanted to have something better than everybody else. I was the friend that like, if you got the new video game, I had that video game and another one that was just about to come out that you ain't know about. (laughs) So... You know, one day, my friend came outside. He had these ugly, 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 ugly sneakers on. I suppose I should mention at the time, my grandfather, he was a big dude. He wasn't small. He was like 6'3", wore like, like 200 pounds and wore like a size 13 sneaker. Shoe, sorry. And so I used to walk around in his shoes like it was cool. I thought big feet was cool. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, all right. So I was like, yo, bro, I got those, man. That ain't nothing. I got those already. He was like, all right, prove it. I didn't have them. <laughs> so my, grandfa- my grandfather being a, a minister or whatever, he gets the money out of the collection plate. So I knew where he put the money. It's not what you all think. <laughs> I lied. It's exactly what you think. <laughs> So, I told him I got the sneakers, went upstairs. I took the money. I did. And it was like $200. And I went on 3rd Avenue in the Bronx. I went inside, looked at the guy with a straight face. I want the biggest size you got. (laughs) And so, you know, I got the sneakers. And I go home, and my grandfather, he's, he's going off. He found out. He was like, he's screaming at my uncle. He's like, why would you steal my money? My uncle's like, I didn't touch your money. I don't know what you're talking about. And I walk in and I froze. I was like, oh, he mad. And he was like, Christian, come here. I was like, huh? He was like, where'd you get them sneakers? <laughs> Funny story. Uh, I went in your briefcase, got the money. Yeah. He was like, how much money did you take? I said, about $200. What? About $200. Why you crazy, boy? It was, it was, I was, he was screaming, and he said some very hard words. He was like, 
I will never be able to trust you again, but one day you're going to repay me for the money you took. I don't know how, I don't know when, but you're going to repay me. I cried. It was terrible. Fast forward a couple of years, about like two, three years ago. I started, I'm a drummer. I should let y'all know I'm a drummer. I play the drums on the radio for Al Sharpton on the radio, 9 o'clock. And so, yeah, he paid me good. That's good. <laughs> and so, I'm like, I, I didn't get McDonald's for two weeks in a row. So I, I got the money to pay him back. And so, I take him out to dinner at his favorite place, Crown Donut on 161st Street, next to Yankee Stadium. At first, he was skeptical. He said, you got somebody pregnant? I was only 13, I don't know what he was talking about. I was like, no, of course not. That would be absurd. <laughs> so, we got, our, we got our food or whatever, and uh, I took the, I had on a coat. It was cold. It's like the end of October, early November. It was cold. And so, I took it out of my pocket. I felt like a big boy, I took it out of my, side pocket inside, you know the little pocket inside? <laughs> Took it out, put it on the table, had my, had my godfather face, I was like. <laughs> it's there. And he looked in, he was like, what's this? I said, you said I was gonna repay you, and you didn't know how, but I just repaid you. And we started crying, hugging, oh, I love you, I love you too, granddad. The waitress came, she started crying because she thought it was a tip. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm just glad that I got a chance to fulfill what my grandfather said and got to pay him back and earn his trust back from him because he said, you know what, you surprised me. I'm proud of you. I trust you again. And that, and that was the last thing he told me because two weeks after that, he died. And I, I did the same thing y'all did. Aw. <laughs> Until I find out he ain't get to spend the money. I was mad. I said, I ain't eat McDonald's in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, that's like three years to a 13-year-old. And uh, I was mad at my grandma because I knew she had the money. I didn't know what she did with it. And so a couple of like, days go by, we made the funeral arrangements. I still ain't know where the money went. I got up and I went to go view the body and my grandma, she stopped me. She said, you see that suit and them shoes he got on? Like, yeah, she said, your money paid for that. And the expression on my face was like, oh, what? <laughs> I was so proud that, number one, I got my trust back from my grandpa, and he was stunting in the suit and shoes I bought him. Thank you. That was Christian Garland. Christian was a student at Dream Yard Preparatory School in the Bronx where he participated in the Moth High School Story Slam in 2012 and 13. Wilson Porter-Royale is another recent graduate of the Moth High School Slam program. Here's Wilson. All right, so as a kid, I've always wanted a dog. Who doesn't want a man's best friend? Come on. So I didn't just want any dog. I wanted a big dog for a little kid. I wanted a 
feel like a macho man. I went to the caviar Rottweiler or a Husky. You know, I, I went to the protection, basically. I wanted some protection. And I've always asked my mom, 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 can, can we have a dog? I want to have a dog. Can, please, can we have a dog? No, I'm sorry, we can't have a dog. A dog is a lot of responsibilities. But come on, I'm going to train it. I'm going to teach you how to stay, how to, how to follow me, how to fetch. I'm going to give it treats. He's going to be, like, I'm going to, that's going to be me. That's my responsibility. And she goes, no, because it's too much work. And on top of that, we live in, in an apartment. So, all right, fall back. So, <laughs> so last year, I arrived home from school and exhausted, take off my, my shoes, I put it to the side, and I see this little fur ball come up to my, my socks and starts nibbling my socks. And I just feel the little teeth, sharp, like little sharp teeth going to my toes, and it tickled, but it, it hurt it at the same time. It was like little pinches. <laughs> but I couldn't get mad at the fact that this was a dog right next beside me, so the excitement, I didn't really feel as much pain. And, and I looked at him, and I remember seeing the nice little chocolate coloring, like a caramel color with some white whipped cream. Just picture that combination together. He was a lovely dog. We named him Hershey. We named him Hershey. So Hershey, I was given to, he was given to me about two months. And I did everything I said I was gonna do. I trained him. He learned how to follow me. He learned how to fetch. He learned how to stay. And he was just the best dog to me. So, and I'm just saying that because he's the only dog he's, that I've had. <laughs> And so, I don't know, one day I take him outside to my front building and, you know, I'm like, you know what? Today I'm gonna teach him how to follow me without the leash. And, you know, I'm growing this bond with him and I'm, I'm believing and trusting him. That's my pal. He will never leave this building when the door opens. Now, at this time of the, of the um, he's like about five to six months and that door opened and he dashed out of, of the building. Now I'm in uniform and shoes, and I'm running down the block chasing this dog. Now you do not see that every day. Mind you, I'm chasing a little dog, <laughs> half Shih Tzu, half Maltese. <laughs> yeah, so I'm chasing the dog, and I'm running, and, I, and I'm like, no, I'm gonna get this dog, and, I, and I'm catching up to him in the sidewalk, and I run beside him, and I'm catching up, and his hair's flying back. He looks like a little, like a lion, a miniature lion. <laughs> and he's, his, his tongue is rolling out his mouth. He looked like a fruit roll-up tongue. <laughs> he's just excited, freedom at last. And so he's running. Now mind you, he runs into the street now. And this is the Grand Concourse. Now if you've been to the Grand Concourse, you would know that this is like a mini highway. Hell breaks loose. Anything could happen in, in the Grand Concourse. Now in the Grand Concourse, I felt like, you know what, this is my responsibility. Y'all still gonna take care of him. Now I have to go and take this risk and I charged for him. I ran outside into the streets and I'm chasing this dog. I ran through all these cars and I'm, no, you're gonna stop. I'm on a mission right now to save the dog. Mission of the day, get this accomplished. Now the bus driver sees that I'm chasing this little dog and he's like, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, yeah, go get him, get him. Yeah, get him. And I'm, oh, thank you. Now things are getting a little hectic because he runs into the middle, middle of the street, more centered, where all these cars are coming up. Now you have vans, trucks, buses, all coming in from one side, and he just shocks, and everything gets hectic. Faster, they're coming, and now you see the, the honks of the, of the cars, and you can hear the tunes of the buzzing. And it was too late. 
for death because I grabbed my dog and I lifted him up into the sky like if he was Simba. Death was not gonna take my dog today, nope. So I'm lifting him up into the sky because he was Simba and I'm just, I, I bring him to my, to my chest and I have this heart to heart, chest to chest connection and he's just shivering on me and I go, no, you little dog, I'm scolding him like, no, next time, like you see a child, you will hold his hand so you will cause him I'm gonna keep you on the leash, you are not going nowhere. And so I walked off with the dog and the bus driver gets me the thumbs up, he goes, yeah. And I walked out of there feeling victorious, thank you. That was Wilson Porto Real. Wilson was a student at the Bronx Leadership Academy and was the winner of the citywide spring 2014 high school Grand Slam. When I talked to Wilson recently, I asked him what it was like being a boy in the Bronx. Growing up, growing up in the Bronx is not easy, man, you know? I think you get punched in the face for just staring at somebody. <laughs> and it's sad, you know, it shouldn't be like that. Um, aside from it being bad, you know, it has its good parts. You always get love, you know, you always get love out there. Maybe you don't have love in the house and, you know, a group of kids outside that be there outside every day all the time. That's family. For a lot of people, that's their family, you know. That's what they come home to. That's what they leave school and that's their home. Because a lot of parents aren't there for their kids when you come from a place like that. A place that's not as clean or very troublesome. If you could uh, choose where to raise your kids, where are you going to raise them? Are you going to raise them in the city? Or are you going to raise them in the country? I don't know. I think I'll probably raise them for a short amount of time in the Bronx to a certain age and then move out to something greater or better. Why do you want to raise them in the Bronx for a while? Just so they can know that. Because I don't know. I think something about New York. People say New Yorkers have attitude. Now, I'm not saying I want my child or children to have attitude, but I want them to have that confident attitude. And something about the Bronx, to me, it, it could give you something. It doesn't just give you bad things. You could really learn something positive about it. And, you know, I want them to take that with them and bring it somewhere else. To hear more of my interview with Wilson Porto Real. And to see a picture of that dog, Hershey, visit themoth.org. We'll be back in a moment with the tale of a boy from Sierra Leone. Orphaned by war, at 13 he becomes a child soldier. But that's not his story. The story is about his new life in a Manhattan high school when the Moth Radio Hour returns. Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX.
I'm George Dawes Green, the founder of The Moth, and you're listening to The Moth Radio Hour from PRX. In this hour, we're telling stories about boyhood. Ishmael Bea was a child warrior in Sierra Leone, but the story that he told at the Harvey Theater in Brooklyn begins when he arrives at JFK Airport at the start of his new life. Here's Ishmael Bea. I came to New York City in 1998. I was 17. I entered uh, the United States with just a passport in my hand uh, because somehow the uh, baggage that I had that I checked in when I boarded the flight from Ivory Coast uh, didn't make it. I stood there at the luggage rack watching all those huge bags go by and mine didn't come. And this bag had all my possessions at that point, which were two pants and two uh, shirts, one long sleeve and one short. So I just started laughing. And I didn't even bother go to the lost baggage section to claim it. I just walked right out <laughs> um, to meet uh, uh, my, my new mother, who was standing there with a beaming smile waiting for me. We left and went into Manhattan. And that evening, we went to Kmart um, after we had had uh, Chinese food uh, and a fortune cookie that said, you're about to have new clothes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, um, that what, what, what a great omen. This is great. Uh, fresh new start uh, to everything. You know, you see, I was coming from a country called Sierra Leone at age 11. A war had started in my country. Uh, at 12, I had become an orphan uh, because my mother, father, and two brothers had been killed in that war. At 13, I was fighting as a soldier in that same war. At 16, after three years of war, I'd been removed from that and had gone to a rehabilitation center where I began learning how to deal with the memories of the war. So before standing at JFK in June of 1998, uh, to begin uh, having a new home again, to have a mother who was willing to take me into her life, when most people at the time were afraid of somebody like me coming from this experience, um, to start living again a chance at living again, because all I had come to know since I was 11 was how to survive. I didn't know how to live. Um, all I knew, uh, really, to this point in my life was struggle. This pretty much defined how I expected things from life, and I didn't trust in happiness or any kind of normality at all. So here I was in New York uh, with my mother. We needed to take uh, a start with that normality. But we had a lot of pressing things to deal with, and one of the most pressing ones was that I needed to get into school. You see, before I came here, the visa that had been given to me with uh, calls from my mother to the American embassy, uh, you know, in ways that calling the ambassador and talking to them in ways that probably nobody ever talked to them about giving me the visa, which they gave me, which was a prospective student visa. This meant that when I arrived in the United States, I had three months to get into a school, and if I didn't, I would return to my war-turned country, Sierra Leone, at the time. 
Now, when I arrived, it was in the summer, so all schools were closed. But my mother got on the phone and called every school principal she could think of in Manhattan and tried to get them to grant me an interview. Uh, when I went to some of the interviews, I was immediately denied uh, entrance to some of these schools because of the following conversation. Do you have a report card to show that you had been in school? I said no, but I know I have been in school. Uh, <laughs> and then my mother would interject to explain the context. So I would sit there thinking to myself, you know, what do these school principals really think? They really think that when there is a war, uh, in your village or in your town is attacked and people have gone down in front of you, you're running for your life, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I must take my report card and put it in the back of my pocket, you know. So I decided that I was going to, uh, you know, write an essay about uh, this. And the essay was simply titled, Why I Do Not Have a Report Card. Um, with this essay, Along with the exams that were given to me, uh, I was accepted uh, to the United Nations International School and placed in 11th grade. Um, thus began uh, my two years of high school of confusing other teenagers about who I was. You see, um, I didn't fit into any box. Um, I didn't have the same worries about what shoes or clothes I wore. Um, and so my teenage counterparts always wanted to find out why I, I was like that. And of course, I couldn't tell them because I felt that they were not ready. What was I going to say during a, a break from hanging out or from class or from playing soccer? Hey, you know, I was a child soldier at 13. Let's go back to class now. That would have very, <laughs> they would interpret it wrongly. So I was silent mostly. I, I, I didn't say much. And this got them even more curious. They wanted to find out why does this kid doesn't even act tough. You know, why some of my uh, friends who were boys were acting tough and people were doing all kinds of things. I would just smile. I would just laugh. And so sometimes they would think that I was very weird. So they always had comments. And they will say to me, you're such a weird kid. And I will respond by saying, no, 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 I'm not weird. Uh, weird has a negative connotation. I prefer the word unusual. It has a certain um, sophistication and gravitas to it that, that, that suits my character. And of course, when I was finished saying this, they would look at me and say, why don't you speak like a normal person? And the reason why I spoke like this is because I was, uh, you know, I, it was my British African English that I'd learned, which was only formal English that I knew. So whenever I spoke, uh, people felt ill at ease, particularly my teenage counterparts. They thought, what is wrong with this fellow? Um, some of them, though, didn't find it very strange. Uh, they thought maybe it was because I was from some royal African family. That's why my English was like this. So throughout my high school years, I tried to make my English less formal so that my friends would not feel uh, disturbed by it. Um, however, I did not dispute the fact that they thought I was from some African, uh, royal African family or that I was a prince. Because you see, sometimes some uh, stereotypes have their benefits. Um, but with this, with this silence, um, 
I needed to be silent about my background because I also felt being watched. And I realized that the way I conducted myself would determine whether they would ever let somebody into such a school, a child that had come through war. So with all of this attitude, with this silence, I started making friends, who to them it was sufficient that I was just some kid who lived in the East Village, uh, who was from, uh, from an African country, and these kids were tough, they told me, because they lived in a tough city, New York, and therefore they were tough. <laughs> um, they had been to the Bronx, they had been to Bed-Stuy, they had... Um, taking the train there, they went to school there, they had gotten into fights and won, and you know, they were tough. And so they would tell me things about, you know, if you want to survive the streets of New York City, we need to teach you a few things. And I'll be like, okay, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm open to learning about whatever you can give me. And they, would, and they would tell me things about how to be tough and stuff, and I would say, well, thank you very much. I, I truly appreciate these, uh, these these advices that you're giving me. They were like, no, no worries, our African brother, anytime. anytime. <laughs> and, and then I would laugh. Truth was that I'd been to some of these places these, uh, that they spoke about, these neighborhoods, and I knew that the people who lived there didn't glorify violence the way they did. They didn't have time to pretend because they lived in it, just like I did. I noticed that these kids had a sort of uh, uh, an idea of violence that uh, they, they never really lived. They glorified it in a way because they've never experienced it at all. Um, for example, when I walked with them, I observed that I paid more attention to the people who walked past us, how the person walked, which way they were coming. I didn't take the same route twice because I didn't want to develop a predictable habit. These are all things that came out of uh, my experiences, but I noticed that they didn't do that at all. So I knew they were just uh, saying these things to seem tough to me. Now, I did enjoy listening to some of these, uh, my friends that I'd made. I enjoyed listening to them tremendously because I wished when I listened to them that the only violence that I knew was one that I pretended to imagine, you know. And when I also listened to them, it allowed me to experience childhood in a way that I didn't know was possible, you know. One that was normal, at least, in, in a way, to, to, to me. I got to be a child again with them, where the only worries that I had with them were when we went rollerblading uh, without any protective gear. We took our brakes off, and sometimes we would avoid hitting an old lady and fall into a trash can on the street, and we laughed about it. So these things meant a lot to me. So after about a year of being friends with some of these boys, uh, one of them uh, decided to invite a group of us, about 10 of us, to upstate New York. His family had a property up there. Uh, and he said we were going there for one weekend to play paintball game. And I said, well, what is that? And he says, oh, man, you've never played paintball. You're going to love it. It's a great game. The fellows and I, we always play it. And don't worry, we'll protect you. So I went with them one weekend upstate uh, to a humongous property that had trees, sheds here and there, rivers that ran into a bigger river, and this beautiful open place. But as soon as we arrived, I began to memorize the terrain immediately. And this was from habit. I knew how many paces it took to the house, how many paces it took to the first tree, to the, to the first bush, to this shed. I knew the spaces between the trees. 
So overnight, while everybody was sleeping, I tried to replace some of these things in my head to memorize the terrain. And this was coming out of habit, because where I was coming from in my previous life, this was life or death, this kind of skill set. It could determine whether you lived or died. Um, in the morning, at breakfast, they were pumped up. Everybody was saying, yeah, the game is going to be awesome today. And so after we finished breakfast, I was introduced to the game of paintball. They showed me the weapons, how you can shoot it. Um, and I allowed them to teach me uh, to shoot things. And they were very macho about it. I said nothing. I allowed them. They taught me this is how you shoot. You aim like this. I said, OK. I tried it a few times. You know, I deliberately missed, and I did things like that, you know. And then they showed me the, the camouflage, the gear, the combat gear, and everything. And then they were ready, and we were ready, we prepared, and everybody was ready to go, and they were amped up, macho, and being like, yeah, we're going to go out, you know, we're going to do this. Um, we went off into the bush, and one of them shouted, yeah, let the war begin. I'm going to bring pain to all of you. I'm going to show you how it's done. And I said, thought to myself, first rule of warfare, you never belittle your opponent at all. Uh, but I didn't say this, so I went into the bushes. I already knew because I'd memorized the layout of the place. I knew where to go. And so I would hide. I would wait for them. You know, I would climb a tree here. I would hide under certain shrubs. And they would come rolling around, jumping, doing all kinds of things, probably things they'd seen in movies about how people are in war. Um, and I would just wait for them. And after they were done exhausting themselves, I would just come up behind them and I would shoot the, the paintball at them. You know? um, and, uh, you know, and so this went on. And for, the f for the weekend days that we were there, during lunch, during uh, um, um, dinner, they would talk about this. How come you're so good? You sure you've never played paintball before? I said, no, I've never played paintball before. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm just a quick learner. And also, you guys explained the game to me so well. So you guys are really great teachers. This is why I'm able to play so well. Um, and so, but they said, but that's not just the thing. They would, their parents were there, so they would explain to their parents, but this guy, you know, he comes up on you, you can't even hear him coming at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Also, and I said, well, you know, I, I grew up uh, in a village, and, and I used to be a hunter when I was a boy, so I know how to blend in the forest, you know, like a chameleon. I know how to adapt to my environment. And they look at me, you're a very strange fellow, man, but you are badass at paintball. I said, well, thank you. Thank you very, very much, you know. And so they started to team up with each other, and I would see them. Sometimes I would, I would you know, walk backwards, and I would stand where my footsteps began, and they would start following, and I would be behind them, we're going, you know. And I did all kinds of funny things that I thought were very funny to me, you know. Anyway, at some point, I decided that I was going to sit out the game just so that they could enjoy it. So I, and, and I saw a sense of relief from all of their faces. They were like, oh, well, fine. So, so when I returned, um, I told my mother about this game, and my mother was, you know, being a mother, was immediately worried, oh, did they bring up something for you? And I said, no, it didn't, absolutely, because I know the difference between pretend war and real war, but it was just interesting for me to observe how my friends perceived what war is. These boys of mine, or these friends of mine, the next day in school, they talked about the game, the awesome weekend of paintball we had, but they never said how I'd won all the games. <laughs> Uh, and I said nothing at all. They never invited me back to play paintball with them. Um, and I didn't ask, I didn't try to. You know, I, I wanted to, 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 to 
to talk to them about um, the war uh, while we were in the, in, in, playing this game. I wanted to explain to them certain things, but I felt that if they knew about my background, they would no longer allow me to become children, a child with them, that they would fear me, they would see me as an adult. My silence allowed me to participate in my childhood with them. It allowed me to, to experience certain things with them that I didn't think were possible uh, to do as a child because of where I was coming from. But I wish, though, that I had been able to tell them because it was only years later that they learned uh, why I had won the game. But I wish I had been able to tell them early on because I wanted them to understand how lucky they were to have a mother, a father, grandparents, siblings, people who to them were annoyingly caring about them and calling them to make sure they were okay. I wanted them to understand also that, you know, it was extremely lucky for them to only play pretend war and never have to, play, to do the real thing. And that this naive innocence that they have about the world was something that I could no longer have. I did not have that capacity. Thank you. That was Ishmael Beya. Ishmael is the author of A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier, and Radiance of Tomorrow, a novel. He lives in Mauritania with his wife and children. That's it for this episode of The Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from The Moth. Your host this hour was George Dawes Green, founder of The Moth. The stories in the show were directed by George, Catherine McCarthy, Michaela Bly, and Jennifer Hickson. The rest of The Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Whitney Jones. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Carla Kilstead and Dan Rathbun, Dan Romer and Ben Zeitlin, The Whitest Boy Alive, and It's Not You, It's Me. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.